This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can find us directly on our social media pages, Healing Paths Recovery, or directly on our website, www.healingpathsrecovery.com. And while you're there, I would love a review. Hi everyone, welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack, and today I have with me Ethan, and Ethan is going to be a recurring guest on the Thanks for Sharing podcast going forward, and I'm really excited about that. I've known Ethan for, gosh, like how long, Ethan? It feels like six or seven years. Okay, seven years. He's an employee at Healing Paths, and that's how I've gotten to know him. And I have a lot of positive things to say about Ethan, but I'm going to just kind of turn that over to Ethan, let him share with you all what he's comfortable with sharing about who he is and what he does. Thanks, Jackie. This is fun for me since I have listened to your podcast quite a bit. So I'm here, right? (laughs) I think just a little background about myself. I grew up here in Utah, grew up a lot in the outdoors, doing a lot of hiking, a lot of exploring, um, and that always held a very special place in my world and it was only later down the line that I connected how much that impacts my mental health and has been something I've been very passionate about ever since. I think probably kind of the most interesting part about how I got into therapy was I was doing wildland firefighting and I was intent on making that my career and then ended up injuring my back and so I was like well what's something else that is adventurous and doesn't require my body as much. And so <laughs> psychology was it because I thought, wow, what a fascinating adventure to be able to dive into people's lives and try and understand the brain and why we do what we do. And that was a move that I have been very happy with and really rewarding. So I went through a psychology program and then a social work program and was very fortunate to land with you pretty close after graduation and it's been a a journey since then so yeah that's interesting that you describe it as looking for the next adventurous thing that doesn't you know require so much of body or will not hurt your back I mean some days it's a long day right sitting right I didn't think (laughs) about that part (laughs) (laughs) yeah some things and you'll get to know this listeners as you listen to podcast Ethan is a guest on Ethan brings a pretty calming presence, I would say. I, I don't think, Ethan, I've ever seen you not pretty even killed, which I think is, you know, your clients benefit from that. We as a team benefit from that. And so I'm excited for all of you to get to know Ethan a little bit more. When I was thinking about our first podcast episode to record with Ethan, the first thing that came to mind is talking about trauma work and specifically the importance of being a trauma-informed therapist. And I want to, I know I mentioned to you, like I have both uh, mental health professionals as well as non-mental health professionals listen to the podcast. I think it's helpful to understand and I want clients to understand what they should be able to expect if they're going to a therapist who is saying that they are trauma-informed or trained in a trauma modality. Because if you're trained in a trauma modality, you should be trauma-informed. And I don't know that that's always the case. I understand like when we do a training for a specific modality, I mean, it costs money, it takes time. 
they're not a grad program. Like they can only equip us with so much information. And I think they're kind of counting on the therapists showing up to the trainings, already having some trauma informed backgrounds, and then they'll train us in the modality. But I don't know that that's always the case. So let's talk about, you know, what to expect if you're working with a trauma informed therapist or what a trauma informed therapist means. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, as, as I think about being trauma-informed as a therapist, there's two main areas or categories that I tend to think of, which would be one is the like educational component and understanding what is happening in the brain, what impact or effect does trauma have on your system, on your nervous system. Um, and I think the second category, which really goes hand-in-hand hand with that, is how does this show up relationally? And I think that is one of the most important pieces of doing any type of trauma work is understanding and helping clients being able to make sense of how has this trauma influenced or informed the way that I relate to the people around me, the world around me, how I relate to my inner experiences. And I would echo what you said. I don't think a shorter training is going to give you enough to really dive into that and understand that. Mm-hmm. So I think those. Also, those are I don't know where they would draw the line of. I mean, that's a lot to undertake for anybody doing a training on a modality to undertake, like making sure you have reached a certain threshold of trauma informed. Like I wouldn't want to take that on, but I think as therapists we have to take that on. We have to be doing reading. We have to be taking other coursework. We have to be like educating ourselves. I mean, it's been a long time since I was in grad school. And a lot of grad programs are now offering classes about trauma and trauma-informed. My experience seeing that on the hiring end is it depends on who they had as a professor. It depends on them and what they absorbed from that. You know, So some, I think, really got a pretty good foundational work from their trauma classes and others, not so much. Oh, absolutely. I, I knew that I wanted to work with trauma going into my grad program and knowing that there was not enough that they could offer me to really Mm -hmm, give mm -hmm. me enough of a foundation for that. And so it did require a lot of networking with people who were trauma-informed, getting recommendations from them, reading, self-education across the board. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I think too, like one of the benefits of the two of us having this conversation is I also benefit from other trauma-informed therapists having a discussion with them about that. Like, even if it's not necessarily new information to me, you know, they're explaining it or their conceptualization of it is going to be different than mine. And so I think even that is a beneficial learning to have conversations like this. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, we talked about just trauma informed at a basic level being, you know, how it impacted us, how it's still impacting us how it shows up in our life, in our relationships. Maybe let's talk a little bit about why we need to look at the relationships in terms of seeing how it is showing up. And I think this can certainly be a very complex and nuanced topic to get into. So we'll be trying fun to cover the whole range there. I think one of the most important pieces to really understand with that, at least from my perspective, is that Once we've experienced trauma, if we haven't 
integrated that, and I'm sure we can get a little more into that down the road, mm -hmm. then that experience and that trauma sticks with us and is going to greatly influence our present day and our current reactions and interactions. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, why I think that becomes so important relationally is it's very easy to perceive, oh, this relationship is strained or this person is maybe really critical of me. And from an outside perspective, one may say like, oh, I don't actually think they're being critical. And that may be more of that trauma narrative that's stuck in there that's mm -hmm. now impacting the way that you see the other person. Right. That based on our previous, maybe previous relationships or previous experiences that were traumatic, we kind of take that lens on. I often will tell clients, you know, our threat system operates on a better safe than sorry kind of modality, which means it's going to get things wrong often, but also it'll keep you safe, right? I mean, that's its intent. It's trying to keep you safe and alive, right? But it's also going to get things wrong and that's okay because again, better safe than sorry. And so we'll see those things start to show up and we may see it through our threat lens. You were saying it takes somebody outside of our threat system to be like, okay, that's not really how I'm hearing that. So can we look at that from maybe a different angle? Absolutely. Yeah, and I love the way you frame that. I usually think about it as like a prediction that our brain is always mm -hmm. predicting and thinking, what do I need to keep myself safe here? really kind of the significance that that plays in our relationships right. and our interactions. And you're right. I would rather be safe than sorry here. <laughs> right. Safe than dead in this. In, yes. you know, I mean, that's how the nervous system is operating, right? We can be safe or we can die. Or we can die. Right. So <laughs> easy choice. <laughs> right. Right. So again, I think too, I mean, we talk about, I think this is from Harville Hendricks's work just about how often trauma happens relationally. I mean, as people, we're very relational people. You know, as kids, we are dependent on relationships for our survival. So trauma is going to show up relationally and the healing of trauma is often relational as well. Yeah, and I like that last point you make too, that the healing is relational. Um, just thinking about how you framed, right, that sometimes it takes someone outside of ourselves to point that out. Mm -hmm. Also, gets a little complex with trauma sometimes because there's an element of, well, can I trust this person outside of myself? Can I feel mm -hmm. safe enough with this person? And I think that's where the importance of a trauma-informed therapist really starts to play in that, oh, this person understands what's happening and has some tools or some skills to help both of us navigate that on a moment-to-moment mm -hmm. -moment basis. Yeah. And this is where, you know, we might as a therapist start to, I mean, again, we should be as therapists always attuning to our client throughout the session, kind of our body talking to their body, our nervous system, checking in with their nervous system and, and kind of reading the room, right. Or reading them what's going on, not just in the words that they're saying, but in how it feels how it feels in my body, because I guess seen, you know, oftentimes I will say, if I've kind of cleared my body, or if I wasn't feeling this an hour ago, and all of a sudden I'm feeling it in this session, it's probably not me. 
it's probably what the client is feeling and I'm feeling that because our bodies do that. And so if I'm feeling that, you know, I think a trauma-informed therapist at a basic level knows what to do with it, knows how to use that information, knows how to get that information, and then knows how to use that information in a way that gets us through whatever is coming up and through the emotion. What are your thoughts on that or how do you explain that? Oh, absolutely. I think that first component of can I discern that this is not necessarily mine, that mm-hmm. this is coming up with my client or the other person in the room is one of the most important parts. And then from that relational perspective too, it's understanding what's the most effective way for me to communicate that and get this exchange mm-hmm. on my client's radar that they can understand like, oh, there is maybe this level of dissociation that is sitting here in the room that they weren't aware of before that. Right. And because often they're coming into this with experiences of where it wasn't safe for them to even be aware of what they were feeling, let alone for somebody else to be aware of what they were feeling. I mean, I, I relate to that, like the role in my family, right? I was kind of a, I would say I was a mediator and what that also meant is I couldn't be aware of what I was feeling in that moment because I wouldn't have mediated, right? I wouldn't have intervened. I wouldn't have stepped in and I probably should not have been, right? Let's just say that because I'm like a (laughs) six-year-old. Right, right. (laughs) But I think that's an important learning and clients need to have that awareness as they're doing their healing work and their trauma work, right? They need to have that awareness that like, Feeling this and having another person witness this should have always been a safe thing and is a possibility now. Right. Really the, both the unlearning and the relearning that needs to mm-hmm. take place. I also think it's important to name that there's a lot of people who it wasn't just, oh, I don't need to be aware, but it was actually dangerous if the other person was aware mm-hmm. of what I was feeling. Right. Yeah. And so not only do I need to get really, really good at hiding what's coming up for me, but I'm also going to try and get really good at understanding you and stabilizing you mm-hmm. and essentially being invisible. Right. Which I just think is so profoundly sad, right? I mean, amazing that we could do that. Again, these survival strategies that we develop are in a way brilliant and also in a way tragic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Absolutely. So we're attuning to our clients and maybe even like there are times I want them to attune back with me in terms of like, I know I'm maybe intentionally taking deeper breaths. And sometimes I will verbally say, Hey, follow my breathing. Just notice how I'm breathing and follow that. And other times I just start breathing that way. And I might lean in closer, you know, I might, so I might, sit on more of the edge of my chair. I'm not like invading their space, but I might sit more on the edge of my chair. I usually will lower my voice and talk just a little bit slower. Not like, obviously that's why are you talking so slow? That would be weird. And I'm breathing, right? And I'm talking to them. I'm usually saying it's okay. That's okay. It's welcome here. It's that needs to show up. Like 
and just letting them feel right. And being okay with that. I was talking in my last podcast episode about Robert Bly. I don't know if you know who he is. He's like a American novel. Not was he a novelist or he, he was a writer. Yeah. Um, and he's yeah. probably most well-known, maybe not, maybe this isn't what he wanted to be well-known for, but I think he's most well-known for like creating men's drum circles and stuff, rituals for men. And he talks about grief and he says, when we're, I mean, this is me paraphrasing, but when we're experiencing grief, we have two choices. We can, or somebody is like, maybe I'm not experiencing grief. Maybe my client is experiencing grief. I can either go upward, he says, which is, is the American way. Try to take it up into the intellect and connect in a philosophical way about grief or try to say something that makes them intellectual, right? Or kick in the brain, the thinking process. Usually I say that results in like useless platitudes. Or we can go downward. And downward is going internally, right? It's me connecting with that emotion that I'm recognizing. And maybe I share that emotion. Maybe I say like, wow, I'm feeling a lot of heaviness. That's really hard. Or I'm just feeling really sad about thinking that that happened to you or feeling that that happened to you. So we're trying to go into our emotion and as a way of like walking them into that in a way that's safe or validating or witnessing. Absolutely. And I think for a lot of people who have experienced trauma, and especially chronic trauma, going down, it feels a lot like opening Pandora's box. And it's very, very scary to even think like, I don't even know what is in that box. I don't want to go right. there. <laughs> Right. And so certainly I think that element you're talking about of almost guiding a client into that mm-hmm. and almost an invitation of, Hey, we can, we can open Pandora's box and we can experience this and we can find a way to the other side of it and be okay. To me, that's a very rough summary of what trauma therapy is, is how do we right. open up Pandora's box right. and get to the other side? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's modalities that we can be trained in that help us to do that. But really that is kind of a higher level description of what we're doing in trauma work. Mm-hmm. We're opening it up. We're allowing for the messiness and we're getting through that in that moment. Which I think also speaks to the importance of really understanding trauma in the brain and why being mm-hmm. trauma informed about that is so important. Um, because I mean, really, and this has been, I think, known for a while, but really starting to show up in the research is that if we have trauma that hasn't been integrated or hasn't been resolved, when we start to re-experience that, our brains literally think that we are back in that trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so having an awareness of that, that this isn't just a feeling of, ooh, right, I'm I'm uncomfortable in my body. It's my brain thinks I'm reliving this thing that for a lot of people could have been life-threatening. Right. Because it's, I mean, that's kind of also a definition of trauma is it's unprocessed. It's unresolved. There is unfinished business there because whether it was 
I mean, on a basic level, it was just too much for the nervous system, right? Right. And then maybe we didn't have an environment that knew what to do with it or that they could know we had that or all of those things that we were talking about. And so it's just kind of left as is. And so when you open it back up, there it is the way it was when we closed it. Hmm. Thinking about the going down piece as well, I, I think our culture is not very adept to doing that. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. uh, culturally and just thinking to technology, right? A lot of what exists is aimed at how do I avoid feeling? How do I just check out and focus on something else or not have to talk about it? Right. Uh, and I think being aware of that is so important for anyone, right? <laughs> Whether you're a mental health professional or not, being aware of, oh, how am I avoiding the experience of myself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think our cultural definitely emphasizes this, I think, false definition of strength. That if you are strong enough, you can outpace it, you can outlast it, you can you can win it, right? Which means you don't actually need to be impacted by it. And it's just not true, and nor does that actually make us strong people. Right. I think, in fact, it can lead to quite the opposite, where we become so guarded or defensive around that mm-hmm. harm mm-hmm. that we then treat people in ways that we want to otherwise or you know show up in terms of how we interact with ourselves or the people around us in harmful ways right it kind of does a like i sometimes will say if we're not allowed to feel it it will fracture us or you know in addiction we talk about compartmentalization which is i mean to me that's just another word of being fractured And, you know, this fractured version of myself is not my authentic self. That's not who I am. That's not how I am. But I might be that if I get told over and over that this is what strength is or looks like. Right. That's all we have. That's our model. Right. This is Mm -hmm. what I need to do. Yeah. Which is also, I think, you know, the, I think this is getting more and more, commonly known for professionals in the field that if you are going to be effective at helping your clients in this work you have to have done your own work otherwise you're not going to go downward you have continually gone upward like you're afraid of your own stuff so why would you not be afraid of your client's stuff absolutely and even just going back to some of what we were talking about a few minutes ago if you're not doing your own work, how are you going to even discern what is yours versus what is theirs? Yes, very good point. <laughs> can I discern that? And then, as you said, am I confident enough that we can step into it and it will be okay? Mm-hmm. I will survive it. Yes, right. And I think that's also an important framing that we realistically tell people, like, we're going to step into it and it's not going to be good it's not gonna be Mm -hmm. you won't feel better right away right right in fact it can be very very difficult stepping into it but Mm -hmm. again an element of you'll survive it and you'll be okay Mm -hmm. and then we can get to building something good 
Yeah. And I've had this conversation with clients before technically starting therapy work. I know you've had, you know, and I have had this conversation sometimes at the end of a session in which we've done trauma work. I think your wording is you might feel kind of wobbly. And sometimes before we start, I might say, okay, as we start doing some more more specific trauma work, like we've laid the foundation, the groundwork, and I've done some psychoeducation around trauma, what is trauma, how does it heal, all that type of stuff. I have said to clients before, now, one of my concerns in starting this is I know that, like, your mom texting you randomly on Sunday throws you for weeks, right? And if we've done a session, what about that? How do we game plan for that, right? We have to talk that through. And, you know, sometimes after a trauma session, they, you know, block somebody for a time period while they're letting themselves process because it would just be, I think, too much to have a text like that come in when we've opened up stuff. Or even just, I mean, maybe that's not the situation. It's just we've opened up these memory networks and it wasn't pretty, right? And and we do what we can to kind of start to close those down, but that takes time. It takes, you know, I've heard, you know, uh, 24 to 48 hours. I've heard seven to 10 days. I believe all of that, right? I believe that. I think we're most aware or we feel most wobbly in the 24 to 48 hour period, but it's not uncommon for me to see something processed through after a week and all of a sudden they're feeling it. And sometimes my clients don't connect that back to what the session we did, but I know to do that. Right. Another trauma informed thing to know for the therapist that like, I need to be watching in this next two week period for what's, you know, processing again in a different way. Absolutely. And bringing in that attunement that you were speaking of, right? Am I attuned enough? And do I know my client well enough that I can track some of these changes? Mm-hmm. All right. So, I, and I think taking your example of um, you know, maybe getting a text from mom, I, I think that could potentially highlight a problem of people jumping into trauma work too early is, right. oh, if I don't even know that, your relationship with mom is strained, then how are we going to connect those dots, right? I may think, mm-hmm. oh, that maybe the, it was the trauma work that did that versus this external stressor that just right. got amplified. I think it is safe to assume that if we do not know something about our client, they do not know that either. Hmm. When it comes to some of their trauma, right? And so again, I think sometimes non-trauma informed therapists try to start the trauma work far too early Mm. and they just cannot know what they need to know to set their client up for success. I mean, they may have some ideas, but like at least the ones I work with could not spell it out for me on a complex layer. You know, like I have, I've had some clients whose moms died when they were children And I knew that in session one, but three years into the work, they're like, I had no idea how impactful that was to me and how it changed everything. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I mean, I probably suspected that more than they did in session one. Right. Um, but we had to do some work to prepare them so that it didn't take them out and, and take them literally out of therapy. Right. Uh, and that fragmentation, that word that you used earlier, right? That again, I'm, mm-hmm. I wasn't even aware that losing a primary caregiver had impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so kind of being able to piece that together. And that I think is also one of the really finesse dances with trauma work is understanding how much can we kind of dig into this versus how much do we need to maybe find ways to maintain and buffer that trauma mm-hmm. that's there until there is a little more stability or integration and then we can do a deeper dive. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I had an awakening maybe three years ago working with some clients on their trauma work. I mean, we talk about trauma, you know, we talk about big T trauma, little T trauma. And one of the ways I explain big T trauma, little T trauma is, I mean, big T trauma is, I think our society has a hard time making space for trauma, right? I think we, I mean, I have said before, I'll go on the record again. I think the United States if you look at it as a system, it's a very dysfunctional family system on a very large scale. And so of course we have a problem with identifying family dysfunction. Of course we have a problem with putting our finger on trauma and being able to talk about the nuances of what actually trauma is. But I would explain big T trauma as something that like happens to us that most people are going to agree leaves a mark. And little t trauma is chronic or it's consistent over time. Maybe we see the impact of it registering lower or I don't know sometimes that it actually registers lower. I think we think of it as having a lower impact on us. And so hence the term little t trauma. And I still think there's some benefit, but I would say my awakening maybe three years ago is I was working with like five clients who I would say had big T trauma, they didn't know it. They didn't experience it as a big T trauma. And I think some of that was the people in their life wouldn't allow them to feel how big that was, even though I'm like, how could they not know that that impacts you, right? And some of it was they thought, well, you're too young, so you might not even remember. Or I had one who said, you know, my family members were like, well, I mean, we knew your mom longer than you did, so how could it be more impactful for you than us? And I'm like, okay, um, <laughs> let's talk about what's wrong with that statement. And it was just something that I was like, okay, I might need to be a little, like just kind of cut it a little bit thinner when I'm explaining big T trauma. Because maybe I was taking it for assumption that your average person would accept that that leaves a mark. Mm-hmm. And they don't always they don't. And we are very dependent on how our environment responds to the things in our childhood that we are powerless over. Right. And there's a interesting nuance to that in that on one side, it can be actually very protective to have people and your environment around you that can, again, somewhat buffer from mm-hmm. the traumatic experience. And, right, if, you, if right, there's also and. being 
brushed aside or minimized, then that would be the unhealthy version of buffering that. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it doesn't actually help. Right. Um, right. But I also think it speaks to a very important piece of understanding trauma in that really we have to look at how did this individual either subjectively experience this or what was their perception of this. And we, we can get data from outside sources or family members, friends, people in their lives, but really kind of understanding that the core is going to be how did this person, how did this individual experience that? Mm -hmm. Right. The impact of the trauma is not necessarily universal, which in some ways can make trauma isolating. Mm -hmm. And especially as kids, if we don't necessarily have the language for that. Right. And our caregivers or family members don't know how to give us that language or to engage with us around it. Yeah. Right. And especially as kids. Right. right. <laughs> Again, I need to survive. And so I will go mm -hmm. off of what the people around me are saying and doing. Right. So let's talk about, you mentioned up front, kind of this integrating that needs to happen, right? So let's talk about you know, what that means, how that works. I mean, obviously there's more involved in it than we can kind of capture in an episode, but let's talk about the healing process, which a lot of that is integration. So as we're talking about integration, I think favorite way to overly simplify what we're talking about <laughs> is to talk about how in a traumatic experience, again, this like this stuck element that I've referred to means that our brain thinks that it's going to or that it is happening when we are reminded about it or experiencing something similar to it. And so that integration is essentially helping our brain understand, oh, this is no longer happening right now. This happened in the past and there's a definitive end to it. And because it's ended and because it's no longer happening, I can respond differently or more accurately to the present moment. Mm -hmm. To me, that would be a very simple and again, probably overly simple way of understanding what integration means. But I mean, there's a whole rabbit hole of neuroscience that we could get into about what does it actually mean when something is integrated? Well, maybe let's, I mean, I don't want to get stuck in a rabbit hole, but maybe let's go down a little bit into that rabbit hole. What does the neuroscience say about what is happening when we integrate or what needs to happen for integration? Right. So I think one of the most helpful ways that I learned this and understood it is that I need to be able to think about and ex really kind of remember the experience while remaining in my window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. And just a kind of quick refresher, right? Because I know you've talked about the window of tolerance sure. on your podcast before, but um, it's a way of understanding what is happening in our nervous system. And the window of tolerance is where I feel safe and I feel like I can connect with other people. Lots more that we could talk about as it relates mm -hmm. to that, but... Which isn't, I sometimes will say to clients, don't overthink the window of tolerance. It's not, I am great. Right. It's not, I am amazing, right? right? It's, I am okay. I am safe. I can connect with other people. Yes. And other people, I like, they would 
describe that as I'm open, I'm approachable, mm-hmm. maybe inviting. Yeah. Right. And again, you may be experiencing really difficult things and really great sadness and be in your window of tolerance. Right. And so kind of going back to that integration piece, if I can remember and recall this experience and stay in my window of tolerance, that is really kind of what we're looking for. I think the most helpful starting place is also understanding that when we're experiencing trauma, the part of our brain that is responsible for tracking time really decreases in activity. And so then this memory gets stored in our brain without these clear connections to time. And that really kind of helps us understand why then if I am reminded of the event or if I am talking about the event in the future, I then think that it's happening again because it doesn't have a timestamp on it. Mm -hmm. Or it's not anchored in the past. Right. Like I don't necessarily know that it is not current. Right. And so, I mean, and there's some really fascinating research around how memories are stored and what happens when we Mm -hmm. talk about memories or recall them and how that can change them. Right. But I think the core of it is if I'm recalling that memory or thinking about it and I'm outside of my window of tolerance, that's not going to integrate the experience. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just key to say, again, I can be incredibly sad. I can weep. And be in the window of tolerance. Like, tears are not evidence of dysregulation or being outside of the window of tolerance. They can be, for you know, they can be. But I think we can experience the full range of emotions and be in our window of tolerance. Absolutely. And that was one of the most helpful ways that I learned the window of tolerance, is that I am experiencing my full range of emotions, but with a sense of control and an awareness of options. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I do think that would be really hard for people to understand, especially if they are coming from conflict avoidant family systems or cultures, because the moment we start to step into something that maybe is more uncomfortable or conflict filled or there's anger about it, that can very easily be perceived as I'm now outside of my window of tolerance. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. irrational. I'm flooded. I'm whatever language we want to use. Uh, And again, recognizing that you can actually be very angry and in your window of tolerance. Right, right. That's not the blind anger maybe that gets talked about. You know, it's not that out of control anger. Like we know and are somewhat intentional with what we are doing with the anger when Mm -hmm. we are in the window of tolerance and experiencing anger. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that's also a very important emotion for people to understand if they are working on their trauma i always learned that anger is a great signal that we want something to change Mm -hmm. and i think that can be one of the most appropriate and healthy things for people to experience that i i wish this changed i wish i did not experience this right and so or i will sometimes say my anger is evidence of how intolerable this is Like it is intolerable for me that this was the story and it was just left there. Right. Okay. Then what are we going to do with that story? Right. And that doesn't involve getting the people from the past who were connected to that story involved. That's the good news, right? We don't have to, (laughs) we don't have to involve any outside people. 
we can do that ourselves with the help of usually a therapist, a licensed therapist who is trauma-informed. We can do what we need to do with that. Absolutely. I'm curious if there's any way that you would add to the integration conversation, like from a neuroscience perspective, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do you explain that to clients? Yeah, I, you know, I, I heard Patrick Karn say this several years ago. I've heard him say it a couple of times and I really liked it. He was talking about, I mean, again, he's addiction professional, right? So he was talking about addiction and he was talking specifically about the serenity prayer. I was in a workshop with him, not very many of us, and he was kind of breaking down the serenity prayer. And he, you know, just said serenity can be defined a lot of different ways. One of the ways I define it is all of my compartments are open. They stay open. And I feel peace about that. I don't feel a need to, to close this compartment if this one is open, right? So sometimes I'll explain that. Like, I think when trauma happens, we get through in a way like again, this event or the lack of event, right? Because trauma is also what should have happened for us and did not. So we get through that by compartmentalizing, fracturing that, disintegrating that, right? Because the truth of that is too much for our vulnerable little self, right? And so I might have the stories of that, the, the facts and the storytelling of that event in this compartment and the emotions of that event are in this compartment. And those two are never open at the same time because that was too much. It would have taken me out. And so we have to, like when we are more integrated, I mean, we need, like, we need those two compartments open because I mean, we can have this compartment of the storytelling open, but if just the compartment of the emotions are open, we're going to make it relate to, to what's happening in the moment, right? It's my spouse, it's my kids, it's my boss, and it's not. Or maybe that triggered it, that these emotions really reside with this specific story. And that would be helpful to know. And so it is helpful. Like, in, And sometimes I've been saying, we are an adult now. And what that means is we can actually tolerate more with some groundwork and foundation work, what, you know, maybe as a kid would have taken us out and been very threatening to our psyche is not so anymore because as adults, we just have more options and we have more resources and we are not as powerless as we are in a childlike state or even a teenager state. And so, you know, we need to start opening those compartments and tolerating that and you know, there's insight to be found. There's a lot of emotions to be found, some strong emotions to be found. And we need to, you know, welcome that and know that that's going to actually serve us. Yeah, I, I like that metaphor and that framing of understanding how do we, how do we open these doors at the same time? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And do it in a way that is tolerable. Right. And if we can do that a little bit in the session, we can do that a little bit outside of session, just like a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And I also really am amazed at how the ability of our brain and nervous system to take 
the work that we're doing with our clients and go with that, right? Like just to, to do something that I can't do, that they can't do alone, but like because we're doing this work in session, their brain and their nervous system take that as far as it can go towards progress or healing or integration. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I often will tell them like, I do know that we are designed for healing. Like, it's not like we had this, you know, a template that needed to happen. And if it didn't happen this particular way as a human being, we're just out of luck, right? We are designed for healing, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, we are designed for healing. And sometimes we need help clearing, clearing stuff out so we can, so then our, what our system is designed for can do that. Absolutely. And I would certainly highlight that as a key point that I think I, I've, I've had a lot of clients who didn't actually know that, oh, I, I can heal through this. I can change. Like, this can be different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just the general awareness or understanding that this doesn't have to be permanent. You don't have to live the rest of your life with the impact or the direct impact of this. I think you'll always be impacted by trauma, but right. Having that understanding that, Mm -hmm. Oh, this can be different and things can change. And I have clients who are say, as we're doing the work, I should have done this 20 years ago. Like, why didn't I do this 20 years ago? And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're ready now. Right. I'm like, I think we have to look at it in terms of, aren't you so glad you're not doing it in 20 years from now? Like you came to this awareness enough to reach out, make a call, show up to the therapy appointment because on some level you were like, I can't live like this anymore. Maybe somebody else was helping push you there saying you cannot live like this anymore. But on some level, you're the one who has to show up and do the work. And I think that's courageous. And I think you know, we have to let them know that that is something I think working in them that says maybe life can be different. Maybe I can be different. And the tragedy would be to have never learned that. Right. The tragedy isn't learning that at 35. The tragedy is never learning that. Absolutely. And I think it also speaks to uh, just more of the general knowledge and awareness of trauma and trauma treatment. I mean, I think, you know, if you have that client that goes back 20 years, even 20 years ago, this is not something that was talked about <laughs> nearly as much. No, I, was, I was in the field 20 years ago. <laughs> right. Uh, not talked about. There's not nearly as many options or uh, treatment modalities that you could mm-hmm. dive into. And, um, you know, so I think in that way, it is almost like a, snowball rolling down the hill where I think there's a lot more momentum and awareness of trauma and trauma treatment that's Mm -hmm. coming up right now. Yeah. And thank goodness for that. Like just that is progress we have made to recognize that what started as this very narrowly defined thing that existed, which was called trauma is actually very large. That's progress. Right. Okay, well, let's wrap up there. 
Again, Ethan will be a regularly occurring guest on the podcast. I hope now that you've listened to us discuss, listen to him. You're excited about that. I'm excited about that. Thank you so much, Ethan, for being here. And at the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastering. I am enough. Amen.